Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, so today I'm bringing you a conversation that I originally recorded for the Waking Up app, and we released it there as a series of separate lessons a couple of weeks back. But the response has been such that I wanted to share it here on the podcast and put it outside the paywall. This seems like a better holiday message than most. As I think many of you know, Waking Up isn't just a meditation app at this point. It's really the place where I do most of my thinking about what it means to live a good life. And this conversation is about generosity and about how we should think about doing good in the world. Increasingly, I'm looking to use this podcast and the Waking Up app to do more than merely spread what I consider to be good ideas. That's their primary purpose, obviously. But I want to help solve some of the worst problems we face more directly than just talking about them. And I want to do this systematically, really thinking through what it takes to save the most lives or reduce the worst suffering or mitigate the most catastrophic risks. And to this end, I've taken the pledge over at Giving What We Can, which is the foundation on effective altruism started by the philosophers Will McCaskill and Toby Ord both of whom have been on the podcast. And this pledge is to give a minimum of 10% of one's pre-tax income to the most effective charities. I've also taken the Founders Pledge, which amounts to the same thing, and I've had Waking Up become one of the first corporations to pledge a minimum of 10% of its profits to charity. And the thinking behind all of this is the subject of today's podcast. Of course, there is a bias against speaking about this sort of thing in public, or even in private, right? It's often believed that it's better to practice one's generosity anonymously, because then you can be sure you're doing it for the right reasons. You're not trying to just burnish your reputation. As you'll hear in today's conversation, there are very good reasons to believe that this is just not true, and that the imagined moral virtue of anonymity is something we really need to rethink. In fact, I've just learned of the knock-on effects of the few times I have discussed my giving to charity on this podcast, and they're surprisingly substantial. Just to give you a sense of it, last year I released an episode titled Knowledge and Redemption, where we discuss the Bard Prison Initiative, based on the PBS documentary that Lynn Novick and Ken Burns did, and Lynn was on that podcast. And at the end, I think I asked you all to consider supporting that work, too. And together, we donated $150,000 based on that one episode alone. I've also occasionally mentioned on the podcast that I donate each month to the Against Malaria Foundation. And it was actually my first podcast conversation with Will McCaskill that convinced me to do that. And I do it through the charity evaluator, GiveWell.org. Well, the good people at GiveWell just told me that they've received over $500,000 in donations from you guys, and they expect another $500,000 over the next year from podcast listeners who have set up their donations on a recurring basis. So that's $1 million and many lives saved just as a result of some passing comments I've made on the podcast. And then I've heard from Will McCaskill's people over at Giving What We Can, where I took their 10% pledge, which I haven't spoken about much, but it seems that hundreds of you have also taken that pledge. 
again unsolicited by me, but specifically attributing this podcast and the Waking Up app as the reason. That's hundreds of people, some of whom may be quite wealthy, or will become wealthy, who have now publicly pledged to give a minimum of 10% of their pre-tax income to the most effective charities every year for the rest of their lives. That is awesome. So all of this inspired me to share this conversation from the Waking Up app. Again, this is a fairly structured conversation with the philosopher Will McCaskill. Some of you may remember the conversation I had with Will four years ago on the podcast. That was episode number 44. And that's a great companion to today's episode because it gets into some of the fundamental issues of ethics here. Today's conversation is much more focused on the actions we can all take to make the world better and how we should think about doing that. Will and I challenge some old ideas around giving, and we discuss why they're really not very good ideas in the end. You'll also hear that there's still a lot of moral philosophy to be done in this area. I don't think these issues are fully worked out at all. And that's really exciting, right? There's a lot to talk about here. And there's something for moral philosophers to actually do that might really matter to the future of our species. In particular, I think there's a lot of work to be done on the ethics of wealth inequality, both globally and within the wealthiest societies themselves. And I'm sure I will do many more podcasts on this topic. I suspect that wealth inequality is producing much, if not most, of our political conflict at this point, and it certainly determines what we do with our resources. So I think it's one of the most important topics of our time. Anyway, Will and I cover a lot here, including how to choose causes to support and how best to think about choosing a career so as to do the most good over the course of one's life. The question that underlies all of this really is, how can we live a morally beautiful life? Which is more and more what I care about, and which the young Will McCaskill is certainly doing, as you will hear. Finally, I want to again recognize all of you who have made these donations and pledges, as well as the many of you who have been supporting my work these many years, and also the many of you who have become subscribers to the podcast in the last year. I couldn't be doing any of these things without you, and I certainly look forward to what we're going to do next. 2021 should be an interesting year. So, my deep thanks to all of you. And now I bring you Will McCaskill. I am here with Will McCaskill. Will, thanks for joining me again. Thanks so much for having me on. So, I just posted a conversation that you and I had four years ago on my podcast onto Waking Up as well, because I thought it was such a useful introduction to many of the issues we're going to talk about. And it was a different conversation because we got into very interesting questions of moral philosophy that I think we probably won't focus on here. So it just seems like a great background for the series of lessons we're, we're now going to sketch out in a conversation. But for those who have not taken the time to listen to that just yet, maybe we should summarize your background here. Who, who are you, Will, and how do you come to have any opinion about altruism, generosity, what it means to live a good life? Give us your potted bio. So yeah, my potted bio. Uh, so I grew up in Glasgow, and I was always interested in two things. One was kind of ideas, 
um, and then in particular philosophy when I discovered that. And second was uh, interested in helping people. So as a teenager, I volunteered running summer camps for children with, who were impoverished and had disabilities. I worked at a kind of old folks home. But then it was when I came across the arguments of Peter Singer, in particular his arguments that we have that moral obligation to be giving away most of our income to help people in very poor countries, simply because such a move would not be a great burden on us. It would be a financial sacrifice, but not an enormous sacrifice in terms of our quality of life, but could make an enormous difference for hundreds of people around the world. That moved me very much. But kind of being human, I didn't really do very much on the basis of those arguments for many years, until I came to Oxford, met another philosopher called Toby Ord, who had actually uh, very similar ideas and was planning to give away most of his income over the course of his life. And together we set up an organization called Giving What We Can, which encouraged people to give at least 10% of their income to those organizations they think that can do the most good. Sam, I know that you have now taken that 10% pledge, and I'm mm. delighted uh, that that's the case. And since then, this kind of set of ideas that were really just two, you know, very impractical philosophy grad students kind of setting this up and not think, you know, I certainly never thought it was going to be that big a deal. I was just doing it because I thought it was morally very important. It turned out just a lot of people had had similar sets of ideas and giving what we can acted like a bit of a lightning rod for people all around the world who were motivated to try to do good, but also to do it as effectively as possible. Because at the time we had a set of recommended charities. There was also the organization GiveWell, whose work we leaned extremely heavily on, making recommendations about what charities that they thought would do the most good. Mm. And Effective Altruism at the time focused on charity in particular, and in particular focused on doing good for people in extreme poverty. And since then has broadened out a lot. So now most people in the Effective Altruism community, when they're trying to do good, are doing so via their career in particular. And there's a much broader range of cause areas. So animal welfare is a big focus. And in particular, and I think increasing, are issues that might potentially affect future generations in a really big way. And in particular, kind of risks to the future of civilization at all that mm. Toby talked about when he was on your podcast. And I have a factoid in my memory, which I think I got from your original interview with Tim Ferriss on his podcast. Am I correct in thinking that you were the youngest philosophy professor at Oxford? Uh, yes. Yeah, so the, the precise fact is, when I joined the faculty at Oxford, which was age 28, I'm pretty confident I was the youngest associate professor of philosophy in the world at the time. Oh, nice. Nice. All right. Well, you, uh, no doubt you're quickly aging out of that distinction. Have you, have you lost your record yet? Yeah. Well, I'm an old man at 33 years old yeah, now, and that, that's right. I definitely lost that a few years ago. Well, so it, it's great to talk to you about these things because, you know, as you know, you've been very influential on my thinking. You directly inspired me to start giving a minimum of 10% of my income to charity and also to commit waking up as a company to give a minimum of 10% of its profits to charity. But I'm very eager to have this conversation because it still seems to me there's a lot of thinking yet to do about how to approach doing good in the world. There may be some principles that you and I either disagree about, or maybe we'll agree that we just don't have good enough intuitions to have a strong opinion one way or another. But it really just seems to me to be territory that can benefit from 
new ideas and and new intuition pumps and there's just a lot to be sorted out here and i i think you know as i said we we will have a, a structured conversation here which will break into a series of lessons and so this is really the, an introduction to the conversation that's coming and all of this relates specifically to this movement you started effective altruism and we'll get very clear about what that means and what it may yet mean but this does connect to deeper and broader questions like how should we think about doing good in the world in general and and what would it mean to do as much good as possible and how do those questions connect to questions like what sort of person should i be or what does it mean to live a truly good life these are questions that lie at the core of moral philosophy and at the core of any person's individual attempt to live a an examined life and develop an ethical code and just form a, a vision of what would be a good society i mean we're all personally attempting to improve our lives, but we're also trying to converge on a common picture of what it would mean for us to be building a world that is making it more and more likely that humanity is moving in the right direction. We have to have a concept of what the goal is here or what what a range of suitable goals might be, and, and we have to have a concept of when we're wandering into moral error, you know, personally and collectively. So there's a lot to talk about here, and, and and talking about the specific act of trying to help people, trying to do good in the world, really sharpens up our sense of the stakes here and, and, and the opportunities. So I'm really happy to be getting into this with you. Before we get into what effective altruism is, I think we should address a basic skepticism that people have. and even very rich people have, perhaps especially rich people have this, it's a skepticism about altruism itself, and and in particular, a skepticism about charity. And I think there are some good reasons to be skeptical about charity, and at least in a a local context, and then there's some very bad reasons. And I I just want to lob you some of these these reasons, and and we can talk about them, because I, I meet I would, would imagine you've encountered this yourself. I meet some very fortunate people who have immense resources and can do a lot of good in the world who are fundamentally skeptical about giving to charity. And the bad reason here that I always encounter is something we might call the myth of the self-made man, the idea that there's some, it's somehow an ethically impregnable position to notice all the ways in which you are responsible for all of your good luck, no matter how distorted this this appraisal might be. You weren't born into wealth, and you made it all yourself, and you don't owe anyone anything. And in fact, giving people less fortunate than yourself any of the resources you've acquired is not really helping them in the end. I mean, you want to teach people to fish, but you, you don't want to give them fish. There's some Ayn Randian ethic of radical selfishness combined with a, a vision of capitalism that, you know, wherein free markets can account for, you know, every human problem simply by all of us behaving like atomized selves, seeking our own our own happiness. It will be no surprise to people who've listened to me 
that I think there's something deeply flawed in this analysis. But what do you do when someone hits you with this ethical argument that they're self-made and everyone should aspire to also pull themselves up by their own bootstraps? And we falsify something about the project of living a good life by even thinking in terms of altruism and charity. I think there's a few things to say here. So in the first case, the fact that you're a self-made man, I mean, I do disagree with the premise. I can predict 80% of the ver- of the information about your income just from your place of birth. Mm. Whereas, uh, you know, you could be the hardest working Bangladeshi in the world, but if you're born into extreme poverty in Bangladesh, it's going to be very difficult indeed to become a billionaire. So I agree with you that that's a myth. But even if we accepted that, the fact that you have rightly earned your money yourself doesn't mean that you don't have any obligations to help other people. So Peter Singer's now very famous thought experiment, you walk past a pond, it's a very shallow pond, you could easily kind of wade in as, uh, deep, as, you, as deep as you like, and you can see that there's a child drowning there. Now, perhaps it's the case that you're an entirely self-made man. Perhaps it's the case that the suit that you wore, you justly bought yourself. But that really seems neither here nor there with respect to whether you ought to try and wade in and save this child who might be drowning. And I think that's just quite an intuitive position. Mm -hmm. In fact, this ideal of self-actualization, of kind of being the best version of yourself that you can be, which is the kind of admirable version of this otherwise sometimes quite dark perspective on the world, I think that is like part of being a self-actualized, authentically living person is living up to your ideals and principles. And for most people in the world, you actually want to be a helpful, altruistic person. Acting in that way is acting in accordance with your deepest values. That is acting an authentic and a self-actualized life. And then just on the second point is about whether, well, maybe charity gets in the way. Maybe it's actually harmful because it makes people rely on bailouts. Well, here we've got to just think about, you know, there is market failure where in the case of public goods or externalities, markets don't do what they ought to do. And perhaps you want government to step in, provide police or defense and streetlights or taxes against climate change. And even the most kind of hardcore libertarian free market proponent should accept that's a good thing to do sometimes. But then there's also cases of democratic failure too. So what if the potential people are not protected by functioning democratic governments? That's true for people in poor countries. That's true for non-human animals. That's true for people who are yet to be born. People who don't have a vote. They don't, you know, the future generations are disenfranchised. So we shouldn't expect markets or government to be taking appropriate care of those individuals who are disenfranchised by both the market and by even democratic institutions. And so what else is there apart from philanthropy? Yeah, yeah. So I've spoken a lot about the myth of the self-made man whenever I criticize the notion of free will. It's just obvious that however self-made you are, you didn't create the tools by which you made yourself, right? So if you are incredibly intelligent or have an immense capacity for effort, you didn't create any of that about yourself, obviously. You didn't pick your parents. You didn't pick your genes. You didn't pick the environmental influences that determined every subsequent state of your brain, right? You, you didn't create yourself. You won some f- sort of lottery there, 
But as Will, you point out, where you were born also was a major variable in your success, very likely. You didn't create the good luck not to be born in the middle of a civil war in a place like Congo or Syria or anywhere else, which would be hostile to you know many of the things you now take for granted. So there's something, frankly, obscene about not being sensitive to those disparities. And as you point out, living a good life and being the sort of person you are right to want to be has to entail some basic awareness of, of those facts and a compassionate impulse to make life better for people who are much less fortunate than we are. I mean, it's just, if your vision of who you want to be doesn't include being connected to the rest of humanity and having compassion be part of the, the operating system that orients you toward the shocking suffering of other people, you know, even when it becomes proximate, you know, even when you're walking past Singer's shallow pond and you see someone drowning, you know, we have a, we have a word for that orientation and it's sociopathy or, or psychopathy. It's a false ethic to be so inured to the suffering of, of other people that uh, you can just decide to kind of close your accounts with even having to pay attention to it and, uh, you know, all under the rubric of being self-made. But you know, none of this is to deny that in many cases, it, things are better accomplished by business than by charity, right, or by government than by charity, right? So we're not denying any of that. I happen to think that building electric cars that people actually want to drive, you know, may be the biggest contribution to fighting climate change, or certainly one of them, and maybe better than many environmental charities are managed to muster. I mean, so that there's a there are different levers to pull here to affect change in the world. But what also can't be denied is that there are cases where giving some of our resources to people or, or to causes that need them more than we do is the very essence of what it means to do good in the world. That can't be disputed. And the singer's shallow pond sharpens it up with a cartoon example. But it, it's really not such a cartoon when you think about the world we're living in and how much information we now have and how much agency we now have to affect the lives of other people. I mean, we're not isolated the way people were 200 years ago. And it is uncontroversial to say that anyone who would walk past a pond and decline to save a drowning child out of concern for his new shoes or his new suit, that person is a moral monster. And none of us want to be that sort of person. And what's more, we're, we're right to not want to be that sort of person. But given our interconnectedness and given how much information we now have about the disparities in luck in this world, we have to recognize that though we're conditioned to act as though people at a distance from us, both in space and in time, matter less than people who are near at hand, if it was ever morally defensible, it's becoming less defensible because the distance is shrinking. We simply have too much information. So that's, there's just so many pawns that are in view right now. And a response to that is, I think, morally important. But in our last conversation, Will, you made a distinction that I think is very significant and it provides a much better framing for thinking about doing good. And, and it was a, a distinction between obligation 
and opportunity. The obligation is Singer's shallow pond argument. You see a child drowning, you really do have a moral obligation to save that child, or there's just no way to maintain your sense that you're a good person if you don't. And then he forces us to recognize that really we stand in that same relation to many other causes, no matter how distant we imagine them to be. But you favor the the opportunity framing of, you know, racing in to save children from a burning house. Imagine how good you would feel doing that successfully. So let's just put that into play here, because I think it's a better way to think about this whole project. Yeah, exactly. So as I was suggesting earlier, just if, I mean, for most people around the world, certainly in uh, rich countries, if you look at your own values, well, one of those values is being a good person. And you can see this if you think about examples like there's, you see a building on fire, there's a, you know, a young girl kind of at the window and you kick the door down and you run in and you rescue that child. Like that moment would stay with you for the entire life. You would reflect on that in your elderly years and think, huh, wow, I actually really did something. That was like, that was pretty cool. Yeah. It's just, it's worth lingering there because everyone listening to us knows down to their toes that that would be, if not the defining moment in their life, you know, in the top five, there's just no way that wouldn't be one of the most satisfying experiences. You could live to be 150 years old, and that would still be the, in the top five most satisfying experiences of your life. And Absolutely. given what you're Absolutely. about to say, it's amazing to consider that and, and how opaque this is to most of us most of the time when we think about the opportunities to do good in the world. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, continuing this, imagine if you did a similar thing kind of several times. So one week you saved someone from a, a burning building, the next week you saved someone from drowning. The month after that, you saw someone having a heart attack and you performed CPR and saved their life too. You'd think, wow, this is a really special life that I'm living. But the truth is that we have that opportunity to be as much of a model hero, in fact, much more of a model hero, every single year of our lives. And we can do that just by targeting our donations to the most effective charities to help those people who are poorest in the world. We could do that too if you wanted to choose a career that's going to have a really big impact on the lives of others. And so it seems very unintuitive because we're in a very unusual place in the world. You know, it's only over the last couple of hundred years that there's such a wild discrepancy between rich countries and poor countries where people in rich countries have a hundred times the income of the poorest people in the world and where we have the technology to be able to change the lives of people on other sides of the world let alone the kind of technologies to, you know, imperil the entire future of the human race, such as through nuclear weapons or climate change. And so our moral instincts are just not attuned to that at all. They are just not sensitive to the sheer scale of what an individual is able to achieve hmm. if he or she is trying to make a really positive difference in the world. And so when we look at the, you know, history, look at the heroes like... Think about William Wilberforce or Frederick Douglass or the famous abolitionists, people who kind of campaigned for the end of slavery and the amount of good they did, or other of these kind of great moral leaders, and think, wow, these are like really special people because of the amount they accomplished. I actually think that's just 
attainable for many, many people around the world. Perhaps, you know, you're not quite going to be someone who can do as much as contributing to the abolition of slavery, but you are someone who can potentially save hundreds or thousands of lives or make a very significant um, difference to the entire course of the future to come. Mm. Well, that's a great place to start. So um, now we will get into the details. Okay, let's get into effective altruism per se. How do you define it at this point? So the way I define effective altruism is that it's about using evidence and careful reasoning to try to figure out how to do as much good as possible and then taking action on that basis. And the real focus is on the most good. Hmm. And that's so important because people don't appreciate just how great the difference and impact between different organizations are. When we've surveyed people, they seem to think that the best organizations are maybe 50% better than typical organizations like charities. But that's not really the, the way of things. Instead, it's that the best is more like hundreds or thousands of times better than a typical organization. And we just see this across the board when comparing charities, when comparing different sorts of actions. So for global health, you will save hundreds of times as many lives by focusing on anti-malarial bed nets and distributing them than focusing on cancer treatment. In the case of improving the lives of animals and factory farms, you'll help thousands of times more animals by focusing on factory farms than if you try to help animals by focusing on pet shelters. If you look at kind of risks to the future of civilization, man-made risks like novel pandemics are plausibly just, you know, a thousand of times greater in magnitude than natural risks like, you know, asteroids that we might be more familiar with. And that just means that focusing not just on doing some amount of good, but doing the very best is just, it's so important. Because it's easy, yeah, it's easy just not to think about how wild this fact is. So like, imagine if this were true of consumer goods. So at one store, you want a beer. At one store, the beer costs $100. At another, it costs 10 cents. That would just be completely mad. Mm. But that's the way things are in the world of trying to do good. It's, it's like a 99.9% off sale or 100,000% extra fee. By focusing on these best organizations, it's just the best deal you'll ever see in your life. And that's why it's so important for us to highlight this. Okay, so I, I summarize effective altruism for myself now along these lines. And so this, this is a working definition, but it captures a few of the, the areas of focus and the difference between solving problems with money and solving problems with your time or your choice of career. Mm -hmm. In your response to my question, you illustrated a few different areas of focus. So you could be talking about the poorest people in the world, but you could also be talking about long-term risk to all of humanity. So the way I'm thinking about it now is that it's the question of, of using our time and or money to do one or more of the following things, to save the most number of lives, to reduce the most suffering, or to mitigate the worst risks of future death and suffering. So then the question of effectiveness is, as you point out, there's so many different levels of competence and clarity around goals. There may be very effective charities that are targeting the wrong goals, and there are ineffective charities targeting the right ones. And this does lend some credence to the, the skepticism about charity itself that I referenced earlier. Uh, and there's one example here which does a lot of work in, in illustrating the problem. And this is something that 
you discuss in your book, Doing Good Better, which I recommend that people read. But remind me about the ill-fated play pump. Uh, yeah, so the now infamous play pump was a program that I got a lot of media coverage in the 2000s and even won a World Bank Development Marketplace Award. And the idea was identifying a true problem that many villages in sub-Saharan Africa do not have access to clean drinking water. And its idea was to install a kind of children's merry-go-round, one of the roundabouts, the things you push and then jump on and spin around. And that would harness the power of children's play in order to provide clean water for the world. So the pu- by pushing on this merry-go-round, you would pump up water from the ground and it would act like a hand pump, providing clean water for the village. And so people loved this idea. The media loved it. Said, you know, providing clean water is child's play or it's the magic roundabout. They loved to kind of pun on it. Mm. So it was, a, you know, it was a real hit. But the issue was that it was really a disaster, this development intervention. So none of, the, none of the local communities were consulted about whether they wanted a pump. They liked the, you know, much cheaper, more productive, easier to use Zimbabwe hand pumps that were sometimes, in fact, replaced by these play pumps. And moreover, in fact, the play pumps were sufficiently in- inefficient that one journalist estimated that children would have to play on the pump 25 hours per day uh, in order to provide <laughs> enough water for the local community. But obviously children don't want to play on this merry-go-round all the time. And so it would be left often to the elderly women of the village to push this brightly colored play pump round and round. One of the problems was that it didn't actually function like a, a merry-go-round where the, it would gather momentum and keep spinning. It actually was just work to push, right? Well, exactly. You need the point of a children's merry-go-round is you push it and then you spin and if it's good, it's very well greased, it spins freely. But you need to be providing energy into the system in order to pump water up from the ground. Mm. And so it wouldn't spin freely in the same way. It was enormous amounts of work. Children would find it very tiring. So it was just a, it was just a fundamental misconception about engineering to deliver this pump in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's just like, why would you think you can just go in and replace something that has already been quite well optimized to the needs of the local people? seems quite unlikely. Like, if this was such a good idea, go to ask the question, why wasn't it already invented? Why wasn't it already popular? There's not a compelling story about, well, it's a public good or something. There's a reason why mm. it wouldn't have, already been, wouldn't have already been developed. And that's, you know, let alone the fact that the main issue in terms of water scarcity for people in the poorest countries is access to clean water rather than access to water. And so instead, organizations like Dispensers for Safe Water which install chlorine like at the point of source, so at these hand pumps, chlorine dispensers that they can easily put into the jerry cans that they use to carry water, that sanitizes the water. These are much more effective because that's really the issue is dirty water rather than, rather than access to water mm. most, of, most of the time. Okay, so this just functions as a, as a clear example of, of the kinds of things that can happen when the story is better than the than the reality of, of a charity. And this, uh, if I recall correctly, there were, you know, there were celebrities that got behind this and they raised, it had to be tens of millions of dollars for the play pump. Even after the fault in the very concept was revealed, 
they persisted. I mean, they kind of got locked in to this project, and I can't imagine it persists to this day, but they kept doubling down in the face of the obvious reasons to, to abandon this project. I mean, this included, you know, kids getting injured on these things and, you know, kids having to be paid mm-hmm. yeah. to run them. And it was a disaster any way you look at it. So this is the kind of thing that happens in various charitable enterprises. And this is the kind of thing that if you're going to be effective as an altruist, you want to avoid. Yeah, absolutely. And just on the whether they still continue. So I haven't checked in the last few years, but a few years ago when I did, they were still going. Mm. And they were funded mainly by corporations uh, like Colgate Palmolive. And obviously in a much diminished capacity because many of these failures were brought to light. And that was you know, a good part of the story. But what it does illustrate is a difference between the world of nonprofits and the you know, business world where in the business world, if you make a really bad product, then, well, at least if the market's functioning well, then the company will go out of business. You yeah. just won't be able to sell it because the beneficiaries of the product are also the people paying for it. But in the case of nonprofits, it's very different. The beneficiaries are different from the people paying for the goods. And so there's a disconnect between how well can you fundraise and how good is the mm. program that you're implementing. And so the sad fact is that bad charities don't die, not nearly enough. Yeah, actually, that brings me to a question of about perverse incentives here that I do think animates certainly the, mo- the mo- more intelligent skepticism. And it is on precisely this point that, you know, charities, good and bad, can be incentivized to merely keep going. I mean, just, just imagine a charity that solves its problem. It should be that, you know, if you're trying to, let's say, you know, eradicate malaria, you raise hundreds of millions of dollars to that end, what happens to your charity when you actually eradicate malaria? We're, not, we're obviously not in that position with respect to malaria, unfortunately, but there are many problems where you can see that charities are never incentivized to acknowledge that significant progress has been made, and the progress is such that it calls into question whether this charity should exist for much longer. And you know, there may be some, but I'm unaware of charities who are explicit about their aspiration to put themselves out of business because they're so effective. Yeah, so I have a great example of this going wrong. So one charity I know of was, is called Scots Care, and it was set up in the 17th century uh, <laughs> after the personal union of England and Scotland. And there were many Scots who migrated to London, and we were the poor, we were the indigent in London. And so mm. it makes sense for there to be a nonprofit helping make sure that poor Scots are, you know, had a livelihood, were they able to um, feed, feed themselves and so on. Is it the case that in the 21st century, um, poor Scots in London is the biggest global problem? No, it's mm. not. Nonetheless, Scots care continues to this day over 300 years later. Are there examples of charities that explicitly would want to put themselves out of business? I mean, giving what we can, uh, which you've joined, is one. Mm. Our ideal scenario is a situation where the idea that you would join a community because you're donating 10% is just weird, wild. Like if you become vegetarian, very rare that you join the kind of a vegetarian society, or if you decide not to be a racist or decide not to be a liar, that's not like you join the no liars Mm. society or the no racist society. 
And so that is what we're aiming for as a world where it's just so utterly common sense that if you're born into a rich country, you should use a significant proportion of your resources to try and help other people impartially considered that the idea of needing a community or needing to be part of this kind of club or broader group of people, that just wouldn't even cross your mind. So the day that this that giving what we can is not needed is a very happy day from my perspective. Mm. So let's talk about any misconceptions that people might have about effective altruism, because you know the truth is I've had some myself, even having prepared to have conversations with with you and and your colleague Toby Ord, he's also been on on the podcast. My first notion of effective altruism was that very much inspired by Peter Singer's Shallow Pond, that it really was just a matter of focusing on the poorest of the poor in the developing world, almost by definition, and that's kind of the long and the short of it. And you're giving as much as you possibly can sacrifice, but the minimum bar would be. 10% of your, your income. What doesn't that capture about effective altruism? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because it is a challenge we faced that the ideas that spread are the most mimetic with respect to effective altruism and not necessarily those that most accurately capture where the movement is, especially, especially today. So as you say, many people think that effective altruism is just about earning as much money as possible to give to give well recommended global health and development charities. But I think there's at least three ways in which that misconstrues things. One is the fact that there are just a wide variety of causes that we focus on now. And in fact, among the kind of most engaged people in effective altruism, the biggest focus now is making sure is future generations and making sure that things go well for the very many future generations to come, such as by focusing on kind of existential risks that Toby talks about, like man-made pandemics, uh, like AI. Animal welfare is another cause area. It's not definitely by no means the majority focus, but is a significant minority focus as well. And there's just lots of people trying to get better evidence and understanding of these issues and a variety of other issues too. So voting the form is something that I have funded to an extent and championed to an extent. I'm be really interested in more people working on the risk of war over the coming century. And then secondly, there are, as well as donating, which is a very accessible and important way of doing good, there's just a lot of, in fact, the large majority of people within the effective altruism community are trying to make a difference, not primarily via their donations, though often they do donate too, but primarily through their career cho choice by working in areas like research, policy, activism. And then just as a kind of framing in general, we just really don't think of effective altruism as a set of recommendations, but rather like a research project and methodology. So it's more like the science, you know, aspiring towards the scientific revolution than any particular theory. Mm -hmm. And what we're really trying to do is to do for the pursuit of good what, what the scientific revolution did for the pursuit of truth. It's an ambitious goal, but trying to make the pursuit of good this more rigorous, more scientific enterprise. And for that reason, we don't see ourselves as this kind of set of claims, but rather as a living, breathing, and evolving set of ideas. Yeah, yeah. I think it's useful to distinguish at least two levels here. I mean, one is the specific question of, of whether 
an individual cause or an individual charity is a good one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but by what metric would you even make that judgment? And how do we rank order our priorities? And like all of that is getting into the weeds of just what we should do with our resources. And obviously that has to be done. And I think the jury is very much out on, on many of those questions. And I, and I want to, mm-hmm. we'll get into those details going forward here. But the profound effect that your work has had on me thus far arrives at this other level of just a, the stark recognition that I want to do good in the world by default. And I want to engineer my life such that that happens whether I'm inspired or not. Mm-hmm. The crucial distinction for me has been to see that there's the good feeling we get from philanthropy and, and doing good, and then there's the actual results in the world. And those two things are only loosely coupled. This is one of the, the worst things about us that we need to navigate around, or at least be aware of as we live our lives. That we, we tend, you know, we, you know, hu- human beings, tend not to be the most disturbed by the most harmful things we do, and we tend not to be the most gratified by the most beneficial things we do, and we tend not to be the most frightened by the the most dangerous risks we run, right? And so it's just we're very easily distracted by good stories and, and other bright, shiny objects, and the framing of a problem radically changes our perception of it. So the effect, you know, when, when you came on my podcast four years ago, was for me to just realize, okay, well, now we're talking about GiveWell's most effective charities and the Against Malaria Foundations is at the top. I recognize in myself that I'm just not very excited about malaria or bed nets. The problem isn't the sexiest for me. The remedy isn't the sexiest for me. And yet I rationally understand that if I want to save human lives, this is the dollar for dollar, the cheapest way to save a human life. So that the epiphany for me is, I just want to automate this and mm-hmm. you just give you know, every month to this charity without having to think about it. And so you know, that, that is gratifying to me to some degree, but the truth is, I almost never think about malaria or the Against Malaria Foundation or anything related to this project. And I'm doing the good anyway because I just decided to not rely on my moral intuitions day to day and my desire to rid the world of of malaria. I just decided to automate it. The recognition that there's a difference between committing in a way that really takes it offline so that you no longer have to keep being your better self on that topic every day of the week it's just wiser and more effective to decide in your in your clearest moment of deliberation you know what you want to do and then just to build the structure to actually do that thing and that's just one of of several distinctions that you know you have brought into my understanding of how to do good yeah absolutely i mean it just we've got to recognize that we are these fallible imperfect creatures donating is much like you know paying your pension or something it's something you might think oh i really ought to do but it's just hard to get motivated by. And so we need to exploit our own irrationality. And I think that comes in, in two stages. First, like building up the initial motivation. You can sustain that for, you know, perhaps feeling of moral outrage or just a real kind of yearning to start to do something. 
you can get that. So in my own case, when I was deciding how much should I try and commit to, to give away over the course of my life, I just, I looked up images of children suffering from horrific topical diseases. And that, you know, really stayed with me, kind of gave me that initial motivation. Or I still get that if I um, read about the many close calls we had where we almost had a nuclear holocaust over the course of the 20th century. Or if I, you know, learn more history and think about what the world would have been like if the Nazis had won the Second World War and created this global totalitarian state. There's, you know, or fiction, like most recently reading 1984, and again, this kind of ways of just thinking just how bad and different the world could be mm. that can really create the sense of like moral urgency. Or just, the, you know, on the news too, the kind of moral outrages we see all the time. And then the second is how we, di- how we direct that. And so in your own case, just saying, Yes, every time I have a podcast, I donate three and a half thousand dollars and it saves a life. Very good way of doing that. Similarly, you can have a system where every time a paycheck comes in, 10% of it just, it doesn't even enter your bank account. It just goes to, or at least immediately leaves to go to some effective charity that you've carefully thought about. And there's other hacks too. So public commitments are a really big thing now. I think there's no way I'm backing out of my altruism now. Right. <laughs> Too yeah. much of my identity is uh, wrapped up in that now. So even if someone offered me, uh, you know, a million pounds and I could skip town, I, you know, I wouldn't want to do it. I, uh, it's part of who I am. It's part of my social relationships. And that's, you know, yeah, that's fairly, pow- that's fairly powerful too. Actually, in a coming chapter here, I, I want to push back a little bit on how you are personally approaching giving. Because I, I think I have some rival intuitions here. That I, I want to see how they survive contact with your sense of how you should live. There's actually a kind of related point here where I'm wondering when we think of causes that meet the test of effective altruism, they still seem to be weighted toward some obvious extremes, right? Like when you look at the value of a marginal dollar in sub-Saharan Africa or Bangladesh, you get so much more of a lift in human well-being for your money than you do or than you seem to in, in a place like uh, the United States or the UK that, you know, by default, you generally have an argument for doing good elsewhere rather than locally. But I'm, I'm wondering if this breaks down for a few reasons. So, I mean, just take an example like the problem of homelessness in San Francisco right now, leaving aside the fact that we don't seem to know what to do about homelessness. It appears to be a, a very hard problem to solve. You, you can't just build shelters for the mentally ill and, and substance abusers and call it a day, right? I mean, they, they quickly find that even they don't want to be in those shelters and, you know, they're back out on the streets. And so you have to figure out what services you're going to provide. And there's all kinds of bad incentives and moral hazards here that, that you know, when you're the one city that does it, well, then, then you're the city that's attracting the world's homeless. But let's just assume, for the sake of argument, that we knew how to spend money so that we could solve this problem. Would solving the problem of homelessness in San Francisco stand a chance of rising to the, near the top of our priorities, in your view? Yeah, so it would all just depend on how, like the costs to save homelessness and how that compared with our other opportunities. So in general, it's going to be the case that the very best opportunities are in order to improve lives, are going to be in the poorest countries. Because the very best ways of helping others 
have not yet been taken. So malaria is still rife. It was wiped out in the US and certainly by the early 20th century. It's an easy problem to solve. It's very cheap. And when we look at rich countries, the problems that are still left are, you know, the comparatively harder ones to solve Hmm. for whatever reason. So like in the case of homelessness, I'm not, you know, sure about the original source of this fact, but I have been told that, so yeah, for those who don't, haven't ever lived in the Bay Area, the problem of homelessness is horrific there. There's just people with severe mental health issues, clear substance abuse, just like everywhere on the streets. It's it's so prevalent. It just amazes me that one of the richest countries in the world and one of the richest places within that country is unable to solve this problem. But I believe at least that in terms of funding at the local level, there's about $50,000 spent per homeless person in the Bay Area. And what this suggests is that the problem is not to do with a lack of finances. And so if you were going to contribute more money there, it's unlikely to make an additional reason. Perhaps it's some perverse incentives effect. Perhaps it's government bureaucracy. Perhaps it's some sort of legislation. I don't know. It's not an issue I know enough about. But precisely because the US is so rich, the San Francisco Bay Area is so rich, is that if this was something where we could turn money into a solution to the problem, it would more likely, more than likely, it probably would have happened already. But that's not to say we'll never find issues in rich countries where you can do an enormous amount of good. So open philanthropy, which is kind of a core effective altruist foundation, one of its program areas is criminal justice reform that it started, I believe, about five years ago. Um, And it really did think that the benefits to Americans that it could provide by funding changes to legislation to reduce the absurd rates of over-incarceration in the U.S., Mm. where, for context, the U.S. incarcerates five times as many people as the U.K. does on a per-person basis. And there's a lot of evidence suggesting you could reduce that very significantly without changing rates of rates of crime. They, it seemed to be comparable to actually the best interventions in the poorest countries. Of course, this has now become an even more well-focused issue. So I believe that they're finding it harder to now, you know, make a difference by funding organizations that wouldn't have otherwise be funded. But this is at least one example where you can get things that come up that just for whatever reason have not yet been funded, kind of new opportunities, where you can do as much good. Mm. It's just that I think they're going to be much, comparatively much harder to find. Yeah, I think that this gets complicated for me when you look at just what we're going to target as a reduction in suffering. I mean, it's very easy to count dead people, right? So if we're just talking about saving lives, that's a pretty easy thing to calculate. If we can save more lives in country X over country Y, well, then that seems like it's a net good to be spending our dollars in country yeah. X. But when you think about human suffering and when you think about how so much of it is comparative, like the, the despair of being someone who has fallen through the cracks in a city like San Francisco could well be much worse. I mean, I think there's certainly, I don't, know, I don't know what data we have on this, but there's certainly a fair amount of anecdotal testimony that poor people in a, in a country like Bangladesh while it's obviously terrible to be poor in Bangladesh, and there are many reasons to want to solve that problem, and by comparison, when you look at you know homeless people on the streets of San Francisco, they are not they're not nearly as poor as the poorest people in Bangladesh, of course, and 
nor are they politically oppressed in the same way. I mean, by global standards, they're barely oppressed at all. But it wouldn't surprise me if we could do a complete psychological evaluation or, you know, or just trade places with people in each condition, we would discover that the suffering of a person who is living in one of the richest cities in the world and is homeless and drug addicted and mentally ill or, or mm-hmm. to you know pick off that menu of despair is actually the you know the the worst suffering on earth and again we we just have to stipulate that we could solve this problem dollar for dollar in a way that you know we admit that we we don't know how to at the moment it seems like just tracking the you know the gdp in each place and the, and the amount of money it would take to deliver a meal or get someone clothing or get someone shelter. And, you know, the power of the marginal dollar calculation doesn't necessarily capture the deeper facts of the case, or at least that's my concern. So I'd actually agree with you on the question of, you know, take someone who, yeah, they're mentally unwell, they have drug addictions, they're homeless in the San Francisco Bay Area. How bad is their day? And then take someone living in extreme poverty in India or sub-Saharan Africa, how bad is their like, typical day? Yeah, I wouldn't want to make a claim that the that homeless person in the U.S. has a better life than the extreme poor. You know, I think it's it's not so hard to just hit rock bottom in terms of human suffering. Mm. And I do just think that the homeless in the Bay Area just seem to have like really terrible lives. And so the question. The question in terms of the difference of the, how promising it is as a cause is much, to do, much more to do with this question of whether the low-hanging fruit has already been taken, mm. where, you know, just think about the most sick you've ever been and how horrible that was. And imagine, you know, and now think about that for months, having malaria, for example, and that, that could, you could have avoided that for a few dollars. That's like you know, an in- mm. incredible fact. And that's where the real difference is, I think, is in kind of the cost to solve a problem rather than necessarily like the kind of per person suffering. Because while rich countries are in general happier than poorer countries, the worst off people, I mean, especially in the US, which has such a high variance in life outcomes. Yeah, the worst, the lives of the worst off people can easily be much the same. Yeah, I guess there's some other concerns here that I have, which... And this 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 speaks to a, a deeper problem with consequentialism, which is mm-hmm. which is our orientation here, you know, not exclusively, and and yeah. people can mean many things by that term. But there's just a problem in how you keep score because you know obviously there are bad things that can happen which have massive silver linings, right? Which in the, you know they have good consequences in the end, and there are apparently good things that happen that. That actually have bad consequences elsewhere and or or in the fullness mm-hmm. of time, and it's hard to know when you can actually know that you can assess what is what is true, the net, how you get to the the bottom line of the consequences of any actions. But like when I think about the knock-on effects of letting a place like San Francisco become a slum, effectively, right? Like you just think of like the exodus in tech from California at this moment. I don't know how deep or sustained it'll be, but I've lost count of the number of people in Silicon Valley who I've heard are leaving California at this point. And the homelessness in San Francisco is 
very high on the list of reasons why. That strikes me as a bad outcome that has far-reaching significance for society. And again, it's, it's the kind of thing that's not captured by just counting bodies or just looking at how cheap it is to buy bed nets. And, and I'm sort of struggling to find a, a way of framing this that is fundamentally different from Singer's Shallow Pond that allows for some of the moral intuitions that I think many people have here, which is that there's an intrinsic good in in having a civilization that is producing the most abundance possible. I mean, we, we want a highly technological, creative, beautiful civilization. We want gleaming cities with beautiful architecture. We want institutions that are massively well-funded, producing cures for diseases, rather than just things like bed nets, right? And we want beautiful art. We, there are things we want, and I think there are things we we're right to want that are only compatible with the accumulation of wealth in certain respects. One framing, I mean, from Singer's framing, those intuitions are just wrong, or at least they're premature, right? I mean, we have to save the last child in the last pond before we can think about funding the Metropolitan Museum of Art, right, on some level. Mm -hmm. And many people are allergic to that intuition for reasons that I understand, and I'm not sure that I can defeat Singer's argument here, but I, I have this image that I mean, essentially we have a, a lifeboat problem, right? Like the, you and I are in the boat, we're safe, and then the question is how many people can we pull in to the boat and save mm -hmm. as well? And you know, as with any lifeboat, there's a problem of capacity. We can't save everyone all at once, but we can save many more people than we've saved thus far. But the thing is, we have a fancy lifeboat, right? I mean, civilization itself is a, is a fancy lifeboat. And, you know, there are people drowning, and they're obviously drowning, and we're saving some of them. And you and I are now arguing that we can save many, many more, and we should save many, many more. And anyone listening to us is lucky to be safely in this lifeboat with us. And the boat is not as crowded as it might be, but we, we, we do have finite resources in any moment. And the truth is, we're because it's a fancy lifeboat, you know, we are spending some of those resources on things other than reaching over the side and pulling in mm -hmm. the next drowning person. So that, you know, there's a bar that serves very good drinks and, you know, we've got a good internet connection so we can stream movies. And, you know, while this may seem perverse, again, if you extrapolate from here, you realize that well, I'm talking about civilization, yep. which is a fancy lifeboat. And, there's obviously an argument for spending a lot of time and, and a lot of money saving people and pulling them in, but I think there's also an argument for making the lifeboat better and better so that we have more smart, creative people incentivized to spend some time at the edge pulling people in with better tools, tools that they only could have made had they spent time elsewhere in the boat making those tools. and. This moves to the larger topic of just how we envision building a good society, even while there are, there are moral emergencies right now somewhere that we, we need to figure out how to respond to. Yeah, so this is a crucially important set of questions. So the focus on knock-on effects is fairly important. So 
when you, again, let's just take the example of saving a life, you don't just save a life because that person goes on and does stuff. Has they make the country richer? Perhaps they go and have kids. Perhaps, you know, they will emit CO2. That's a you know, negative consequence. They'll innovate, they'll invent things, maybe they'll create art. There's this huge stream, basically from now till the end of time, of consequences of you doing this thing. And it's quite plausible that the knock-on effects, though much harder to predict, are much bigger effects than the short-term effects, the benefits of the person you've, whose you know, life you saved or who you've benefited. In the case of homelessness in the Bay Area versus extreme poverty in a poor country, I'd want to say that if we're looking at knock-on effects of one, we want to do the same for both. So, you know, one thing I worry about over the course of the coming, you know, decades, but also even years, is a possibility of a war between India and Pakistan. But it's a fact that rich democratic countries seem to not to go to war with each other. So one knock-on effect of, you know, saving lives or helping development in India is perhaps we get to that point where India is rich enough that it's not going to want to go to war because, you know, the cost benefit doesn't pay out in the same way. That would be another kind of potential good knock-on effect. And that's not to say that the knock-on effects favor the extreme poverty intervention compared to the homelessness. It's just that there's so many of them. It's very, very hard to, to understand how these, how these play out. And I think, actually, you then mentioned well, we want to achieve some of the great things. So we want, you know, to achieve the kind of highest apogees of art, of development. I mean, a personal thing I'm uh, sad that I will never get to see is the point in time where we just truly understand science, where we have actually figured out the fundamental uh, laws, especially the fundamental physical laws. But also just, you know, great experiences too. People having, you know, peaks of happiness that, you know, put the very greatest achievements in of the present day just in the, you know, very greatest peaks of joy and ecstasy of the present day just as basically diff- almost, you know, insignificant in comparison. That's something that really I do think is important. But I think for all of those things, once you're then starting to take that seriously and take knock-on effects seriously, that's the sort of reasoning that leads you to start thinking about what I call long-termism, which is the idea that the most important aspect of our actions is the impact we have over the very long run and will make us want to prioritize things like ensuring we don't have some truly massive catastrophe as a result of a nuclear war or a man-made pandemic that could derail this process of continued economic and technological growth that we seem to be undergoing or could make us want to avoid certain kind of just very bad value states like the lock-in of a global totalitarian regime, another thing that I'm particularly worried about in terms of the future of humanity. Or perhaps it is just that we're worried that technological and economic growth will slow down and uh, what we want to do is spur you know, continued innovation into the future. And I think there actually are just really good arguments for that. But I think I would be surprised if, though, if that is what your aim is, the best way of doing that goes via some route, such as focusing on homelessness in the Bay Area, rather than trying to kind of aim at those ends more directly. Okay, well, I, I think we're going to return to this concept of the, of the fancy lifeboat at some point, because I, I do want to talk about your personal implementation of effective altruism uh, in a subsequent lesson. But for the moment, let's get into the details of how we think about 
choosing a cause in the next chapter. Okay, so how do we think about choosing specific causes? I've, I've had my own adventures and misadventures with this since I took your pledge. Before we get into the specifics, I just want to point out a really wonderful effect on my psychology that is, I mean, I, you know, I've, all, I've always been, I think by real world standards, fairly charitable. So giving to organizations that inspire me or who I think, which I think are doing good work, is not a foreign experience for me. But since connecting with you and, and now since taking the pledge, I'm now, you know, aggressively charitable. And <laughs> what this has done to my brain is that there is a pure pleasure in doing this. And mm -hmm. there's a kind of virtuous greed to help that gets kindled. And rather than seeing it as an obligation, it really feels like an opportunity. I mean, just you want to run into that building and save the girl at the window. Absolutely. But across the street, there's a boy at the window, and you want to you want to run in over there too. And so it's this is actually a basis for psychological well-being. I mean, it, it makes me happy to put my attention in this direction. It's the antithesis of feeling like an onerous obligation. So anyway, I, I'm increasingly sensitive to causes that I that catch my eye and I want to support, but I'm aware that I am a a malfunctioning robot with respect to my own you know moral compass. As I said, you know, I know that I'm not as excited about bed nets to stave off malaria as I should be, and I'm, you know, I'm giving to that cause nonetheless because I, I just recognize that the analysis is almost certainly sound there. But for me, what, what's interesting here is when I, when I think about giving to a cause that really doesn't quite meet the test, well, that then achieves the status for me of a kind of guilty pleasure. <laughs> like I feel a little guilty that I, you know, I gave that much money to the homeless charity because you know Will just told me that that's not going to meet the test. So okay, that's going to have have to be above and beyond the ten percent I pledged to the most effective charities. And so just having to differentiate the charitable donations that meet the test and those that don't is an interesting project psychologically. I don't know. It's just it's just a very different territory than I've ever been with respect to philanthropy. But so. This raises the issue. So one one of these charities is newly formed, right? So it does not yet have a a long track record. I happen to know the people who, or some of the people who created it. How could you fund a new organization with all these other established organizations that have track records that you can assess competing for your attention? First thing I want to say is just does this count towards the pledge? And one thing I definitely want to disabuse people of the notion of is that we think of ourselves as the authority of like what is effective. These are our best guesses. We've give well or other organizations have put enormous amounts of research into this, but they're still estimates. There's plenty of things you can kind of disagree with. And it's actually quite exciting often to have someone come in and start disagreeing with us because maybe we're wrong and that's great. And uh, we can change our mind and have better, better beliefs. And the second thing is that early stage charities absolutely can compete with charities with a more established track record. In just the same way as if you think about financial investment, you know, investing in bonds or the stock market is a way of making a return, but so is investing in startups. And if you had the view that you should never invest in startups, then that would definitely be a mistake. And actually quite a significant proportion of GiveWell's expenditure each year is on early stage nonprofits mm. that have the potential in the future to become top recommended charities. 
And so a set of questions I would ask for any organization I'm looking at is what is the cause that it's focused on? What's the program that it's implementing? And then who are the people who are, who are kind of running that program? But the kind of background is that there's just some things we know do enormous amounts of good and have this enormous amount of evidence for them. And so I feel like we want to be focusing on things where either there's like very promising evidence and we could potentially get more, or it's something where in the nature of the beast, we cannot get very high quality evidence, but we have good compelling arguments for thinking that this might be super important. So, you know, funding clean energy innovation, funding, you know, new developments in carbon capture and storage or nuclear power or something. It's not like you can do a randomized controlled trial on that, but I think there's good kind of theoretical arguments for thinking that might be an extremely good way of combating climate change. It's worth bearing in mind that like saying something that is the very best thing you can do with your money is an extremely high bar. So, you know, if there's tens of thousands of possible organizations, there can only be one or two that are the, you know, have the, that have the biggest bang for the buck. Mm. All right. Well, it sounds like I'm opening a guilty pleasures fund to run, <laughs> run alongside the Waking Up Foundation. I'm very glad that they're pleasures. I'm glad that you are sufficiently motivated. You know, it's a very good instinct that you find out about these problems in the world, which are really bad and are motivated to want to help them. And so I'm really glad you think of them as pleasures. I don't think you should be beating yourself up, even if it doesn't seem like the very most optimal thing. Yeah, yeah. No, no I'm not. And in fact, I have an even guiltier pleasure to report, which, you know, at the time I did it, you know, this is, this is not through a charity. This is just a, you know, personal gift. But, and this does connect back to just the kind of lives we want to live and how that informs this whole conversation. I remember I was listening to the, the New York Times Daily podcast, and this was when the COVID pandemic was really peaking in the U.S. and everything seemed to be in free fall. They profiled a couple who had a restaurant in, I think it was in New Orleans, and they have an autistic child, and they were, you know, everyone knows that restaurants were among the first businesses crushed by the pandemic for obvious reasons. And it was just a very affecting portrait of this family trying to figure out how they were going to survive and get their child the, the help she, I think it was a girl, needed. So it was exactly the little girl fell down the well sort of story compared to the, the genocide that no one can pay attention to because genocides are just boring. And so I was completely aware of the dynamics of this. Helping these people could not survive comparison with just simply buying yet more bed nets. And yet the truth is, I really wanted to help these people, right? So, you know, just sent them money out of the blue. And it feels like an orientation that, I mean, there's sort of two things here that kind of rise to the defense of this kind of behavior. It feels like an orientation that I want to support in myself because it does seem like a truly virtuous source of mental pleasure. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's better than almost anything else I do, spending money selfishly. And psychologically, but it's both born of a felt connection and it kind of ramifies that connection. And there's something about just honoring that bug in my moral hardware rather than merely avoiding it that seems, it seems like it's leading to 
just finding greater happiness in helping people in general, you know, in the most effective ways, in, you know, middling effective ways. Feeling what I felt doing that is part of why I'm talking to you now, trying mm-hmm. to truly get my philanthropic house in order, right? So it sort of seems all of a piece here. And I do think we, we need to figure out how to leverage the salience of connection to other people and the pleasure of doing good. And if we lose sight of that, if we just keep saying that you can spend $2,000 here, which is better than spending $3,000 over there, completely disregarding the experience people are having engaging with the suffering of others, I feel like something is lost. And I guess there's another variable I would throw in here is, you know, this, this wasn't an example of this. This wasn't a local problem I was, I was helping to solve. But had it been a local problem, had I been offered the opportunity to help my neighbor, you know, at greater than rational expense, that might have been the right thing to do. I mean, again, it's falling into the, the guilty pleasure bin here compared to the absolutely optimized, most effective way of, of relieving suffering. But I don't know. I, I just feel like there's something lost. If we're not in a position to honor a variable like locality ever, we're not only building the world or affecting the world here, we're building our own minds. We're building the very basis by which we would continue to do good in the world in you know, coming days and weeks and months and years. Yeah. So, I mean, I essentially completely agree with you and think it's really good that you supported that family. And yeah, it reminds me in my own case, something that stayed with me. So I lived in Oakland, California for a while in a very poor, predominantly black neighborhood. And I was just out on a run and a woman kind of comes up to me and is like, uh, asks if I can stop and help for a second. And I thought she was just going to want help like carrying groceries or something, be fine. It turns out she wanted me to move her couch like all the way down the street. It took like two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I just don't, and, so, and that was out of my working day as well because I was on lunch. And I just don't regret the use of that time at all. And why is that? And e- even from a rational perspective, I'm not saying that this is, oh, I shouldn't just, merely shouldn't beat myself up or something. And I think it's because most of the time we're just not, the bigger question of like, what individual action do we do? Like in any particular case, which kind of moral philosophy has typically focused on kind of act consequentialism. That's not typically the decisions we face. We face these much larger decisions, like what career to pursue or something. Sometimes those are more like actions. But we also face the question of just what person to be, Hmm. what kind of motivations and dispositions do I want to have? And I think the idea of me becoming this like utility maximizing robot that is like utterly cold and calculating out of time, all the time, I think is certainly not possible for me, Hmm. given just the fact that I'm an embodied human being. But also probably not desirable either. I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think that an effective altruism movement would have started had we all been these cold utility maximizing robots. And so I think cultivating a personality such that you do get joy and reward and motivation from being able to help people and get that feedback. And that is like part of what you do in your life. I actually think can be the best way of living a life when you consider your life as a whole. And in particular, it's not necessarily, doing those things does not necessarily trade off very much at all, can perhaps even help with the other things that you do. So in your case, you get this reward from 
supporting this like poverty second family with a disabled child or get reward from helping people in your local community that I'm presuming you can channel and like helps continue the motivation to do things that might seem much more alien or just harder to empathize with. And I think that's okay. I think we should accept that. And that's in fact should be encouraged. So yeah, I think like it's very important once we take these ideas outside of the philosophy seminar room and actually try to live them to appreciate the instrumental benefits of doing these kind of everyday actions, as long as it ultimately helps you stand by this commitment to at least in part try and do just what we rationally, all things considered, think is going to be best for the world. Yeah. So you mentioned that the variable of time here, and this is another misconception about effective altruism, that it, it's only a matter of giving money to the most effective causes. Uh, you spent a lot of time thinking about how to prioritize one's time and mm. think about doing good over the course of one's life based on how one spends one's time. Uh, so in our next chapter, let's talk about how a person could think about having a career that helps the world. Okay, so we're, we're going to speak more about the question of giving to various causes and how to do good in the world in terms of sharing the specific resource of money, but we're now talking about one's time. How do you think about time versus money here? And I know you've done a lot of work on the topic of how people can think about having rewarding careers that are net positive, and you have a, um, a website, 80,000 Hours, that you, you might want to point people to here. So just let's talk about the variable of time and, and how people can spend it to the, the benefit of others. Great. So the organization is called 80,000 Hours because that's the typical number of hours that you work in the course of your life. If that's a, you know, approximately 40-year career, working 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year. So we use that to illustrate the fact that your choice of career is probably, the, altruistically speaking, the biggest decision you ever make. It's absolutely enormous. Yet people spend very little of their time really thinking through that question. I mean, you might think if you go out for dinner, then you spend maybe 1% of the time that you would spend at dinner thinking about where to eat, like a few minutes or something. But spending 1% of 80,000 hours mm -hmm. on, you know, your career decision on what you should do, that would be 800 hours, enormous amount of time. Mm. But I mean, why did I do philosophy? Well, I, uh, you know, I liked it at school. I could have done maths, but my dad did maths. And I wanted to differentiate myself from him. Like, I didn't have a very good reasoning process at all, because we generally don't, you know, pay this nearly enough attention. And certainly when it comes to doing good, you have an enormous opportunity to have a huge impact through your career. And so what 80,000 Hours does via its website, via podcast, and via a small amount of one-on-one -on -one advising is try to help people figure out which careers are such that they can have the biggest impact. And in contrast, you know, this is a much, you know, the question of what charities do I need to is exceptionally hard. This is even harder again, because firstly, you'll be working at many different organizations over the course of your life, probably, uh, not just one. And secondly, of course, there's a question of personal fit. Some people would be, some people are good at some things and not others, a truism. And so how should you think about this? Well, the most important question, I think, is the question of what cause to focus on. And that involves big picture worldview judgments and, you know, philosophical questions too. 
So we tend to think of the question of cause selection by using the heuristics of what causes, and by a cause, I mean a big problem in the world like climate change or gender inequality or poverty or factory farming or pandemics, possibility of pandemics or AI lock-in of values. We look at those causes in terms of how important they are, that is, how many individuals are affected and by how much, how neglected they are, which is how many resources are already going towards them, and then finally how tractable they are, how much we can make progress in this area. And in significant part because of those heuristics, that's why we've effective altruism has chosen the focus areas it has, which includes pandemic preparedness, artificial intelligence, climate change, poverty, farm animal welfare, and potentially some others as well, like improving institutional decision-making and some areas in scientific research. And so that's by far the biggest question, I think, because that really shapes the entire direction of your career. Mm. And I think, you know, depending on the philosophical assumptions you put in, can result in enormous you know, differences in impact. Like, do you think animals count at all or, or like a lot? I mean, would make enormous difference in terms of whether you ought to be focusing on that. Similarly, like what weight do you give to future generations versus present generations? Potentially you can do hundreds of times as much good in one cause area as you can in another. Yeah, and then within that, the question of where exactly to focus is going to just depend a lot on the particular cause area where Different causes just have different bottlenecks. We tend to find that, you know, working at the best nonprofits is often great. Research is often great, especially in kind of new, more nascent causes like safe development of artificial intelligence or pandemic preparedness. Often you need the search. Policy is often a very good thing to focus on as well. And in some areas, especially where, you know, money is the real bottleneck, then, you know, trying to do good through your donations primarily and therefore trying to take a job that's more lucrative can be the way to go to. Yeah, that's a, a wrinkle that is kind of counterintuitive to people. The, the idea that the best way for you to contribute might in fact be to pursue the most lucrative career that you, that you might be especially well-placed to pursue, and it may have no obvious connection to doing good in the world apart from the fact that you are now giving a lot of your resources to the most effective charities. So if you're a rock star or, or a professional soccer player or just doing something that you love to do uh, and you have other reasons why you want to do it, but you're also making a lot of money that you can then give to great organizations, well, then it's hard to argue that your time would be better spent you know, working in the nonprofit sector yourself or doing something where you, you, you wouldn't be laying claim to those kinds of resources. Yeah, that's right. And so it can be so within the effective altruism community, this is now, I think, a, a minority of people are trying to do good in their career via the path of what's called earning to give. And again, it depends a lot on the cause area. So what's the, you know, how much money is there relative to the kind of size of the cause already? And, you know, in the case of things like scientific research or AI or pandemic preparedness, there's clearly just like a lot more demand for altruistically minded, sensible, competent people working in these fields, then there is money. Hmm. Whereas in the current case of global health and development, there's just, yeah, there are just these interventions and programs that we could scale up with hundreds of millions, billions of dollars that we just know work very well. And there, that's kind of, money is kind of more of the bottleneck. And so kind of going back to these misconceptions 
about effective altruism, this idea of earning to give, it's, again, it's very mimetic. Mm-hmm. Um, people love the how counterintuitive it is. And, you know, it is, it is one of the things we believe, but it's definitely kind of minority path, especially if you're focused on some of these areas where there already is a lot of potential funding. If you, and it's more about just how many people can ha- we have working on these areas. Hmm. This raises another point where the whole culture around charity is not optimized for attracting the greatest talent. We have a double standard here, which many people are aware of. I think it's most clearly brought out by Dan Pallotta. I don't know if you know him. He gave a TED Talk on this topic, and he organized some of the um, bike rides across America in support of various causes. I think the main one was AIDS. He might have organized mm-hmm. a cancer one as well. But you know, these are ventures that raised I think hundreds of millions of dollars, and I think he was criticized for spending too much on overhead. But you know, it's a choice where you can spend you know less than five percent on overhead and raise ten million dollars, or you could spend thirty percent on overhead and raise you know four hundred million dollars. Which should you do? And it's it's pretty obvious you should do the latter mm-hmm. if you're going to use those resources well. And yet there's a culture that prioritizes having the, the lowest possible overhead, and also, there's this sense that if you're going to make millions of dollars personally by starting a software company or becoming a, a, an actor in Hollywood or whatever it is, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're, if you're making millions of dollars a year running a charity, well, then you're a greedy bastard, right? And the idea that you know, we wouldn't fault someone from pursuing a comparatively frivolous and you know, even narcissistic career for getting rich in the meantime, but we would fault someone who's trying to cure cancer or save the most vulnerable people on earth for getting rich while doing that. That seems like a bizarre double standard with respect to how we want to incentivize people. I mean, because what we're, what we're really demanding is someone come out of the most competitive school and when faced with the choice of whether or not to work for a hedge fund or work for a charity doing good in the world, they have to also be someone who doesn't care about earning much money. So we need to, we're sort of filtering for sainthood or something like sainthood among the most competent students at that stage. And that seems less than optimal. I don't know how you view that. Uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a little shame. So there, you know, newspapers every year publish rankings of the top paid charity CEOs. And it's, you know, regarded as a kind of scandal, the charity is therefore ineffective. But what we should really care about, if we actually care about, you know, the potential beneficiaries, the people we're trying to help, is just how much money are we giving this organization and how much good comes out the other end. And if it's the case that they can achieve more because they can attract a more experienced and able person, to lead the organization by paying more. Now, sure, that's like, it's maybe a sad fact about the world. It would be nice if everyone were able to be maximally motivated purely by altruism. But we know that's not the case. Then if they can achieve more by doing that, then yeah, we should be encouraging them to do that. You know, there's some arguments against like, oh, well, perhaps there's kind of race to the bottom dynamics where if one organization starts paying more, then other organizations should need to pay more too, and it just you get bloat in the system. I think that's the strongest case for the idea of 
low overheads when it comes to fundraising. Because if one organization is fundraising, well, perhaps in part they're increasing the total amount of charitable giving that happens, but they're also probably taking money away from other organizations. And so it can be the case that a general norm of lower overheads when it comes to fundraising is a good one. But when it comes to charity pay, we're obviously just radically far away from that. And yeah, it shows that people are thinking about charity in a kind of fundamentally wrong way, at least you know, for the effect of altruist purposes we're thinking of, mm. which is not thinking about it in terms of outcomes, but in terms of the virtues you demonstrate or how much are you sacrificing or something. And ultimately, when it comes to these problems that we're facing, these terrible injustices, this horrific suffering, I don't really care whether the person that helps is virtuous or not. I just want the, thing, I just want the suffering to stop. Yeah. I, just, I just want people to be helped. And as long as they're not doing harm along the way, I don't think it really matters whether the people are paid a lot or a little. Hmm. I think we should say something about the other side of this equation, which tends to get emphasized in most people's thinking about being good in the world. And this is the side of kind of the consumer facing side of not contributing to the obvious harms in a way that is egregious or, you know, dialing down one's complicity in this unacceptable status quo as much as possible. And so this goes to things like becoming a vegetarian or a vegan or avoiding certain kinds of consumerism based on concern about climate change. There's a long list of causes that people get committed to more in the, in the spirit of negating certain bad behavior or polluting behavior rather than focusing on on what they're in fact doing to solve problems or giving to specific organizations. Is there any general lesson to be drawn from the results of these efforts on both fronts? I mean, how, how much does harm avoidance as a consumer add to the scale of, of merit here? What's the longest lever we can pull personally? Yeah, so I think there's a few things to say. So right at the start, I mentioned one of the key insights of effective altruism was this idea that different activities can vary by a factor of 100 or 1,000 in terms of how much impact they have. And even within ethical consumerism, I think that happens. So if you want to cut out most animal suffering from your diet, I think you should cut out eggs, chicken, and pigs, maybe fish, whereas beef and milk, I think, are comparatively small factors. Mm. If you want to reduce your carbon footprint, then giving up beef and lamb, reducing transatlantic flights, reducing how much you drive makes significant differences and dozens of times as much impact as things like recycling or upgrading light bulbs or reusing plastic bags. From the purely consequentialist outcome-based perspective, I think it is systematically the case that these ethical consumers and behaviors are small in terms of their impact compared to the impact that you can do via your donations or via your career. And the reason is just there's a very limited range of things that you can do by changing your consumption behavior. There's just things you are buying anyway, and then you can stop. Whereas if you're donating or you're choosing a career, then you can choose the very most effective things to be doing. So take the case of being vegetarian. So I've been vegetarian for 15 years now. I have no plans of stopping that. But if I think about how many animals I'm helping in the course of a year as a result of being vegetarian, and how does that compare when I'm looking at the effectiveness of the very most effective animal welfare charities, 
which are typically what are called kind of corporate campaigns. So it turns out the most effective way of reducing the number of, that we know of, reducing the number of hens in factory farms, laying eggs in just the most atrocious, terrible conditions of suffering, seems to be by like campaigning large retailers to change the eggs they purchase in their supply chain. You can actually get a lot, of, a lot of push there. And the figures are just like astonishing. It's like something like, you know, 50 animals that you're preventing the significant torture of for every dollar that you're spending on these campaigns. Hmm. And so if you just do the maths, like the amount of good you do by becoming vegetarian is equivalent to the amount of good you do by donating a few dollars to these very most effective campaigns. I think similar is true for reducing your carbon footprint. My current favorite climate change charity, Clean Air Task Force, which um, lobbies the US government to improve its regulations around fossil fuels and promotes energy innovation as well. Think probably reduces a ton of CO2 for about a about dollar. And that means if you're in the US, an average US citizen emits about 16 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. If you did all of these most effective things of cutting out meat and all your transatlantic flights and getting rid of your car and so on, you might be able to reduce that six tons or so. And that's, you know, the same as giving about $6 to mm-hmm. um, these most effective charities. And so it just does seem that these are just much more powerful from the perspective of outcomes. The next question philosophically is whether you have some non-consequentialist reason to do these things. And there, I think it differs. So I think the case is uh, much stronger for, for becoming vegetarian than for climate change. Because if I buy a factory farm chicken, and then donate to a corporate campaign, well, I've probably harmed different chickens. <laughs> mm. And it seems like that's, you know, you can't offset the harm to one individual by a benefit to another individual. Whereas if I have a lifetime of emissions, but at the same time donate a sufficient amount to climate change charities, I've probably just reduced the total amount of CO2 going into the atmosphere over the course of my lifetime. And there isn't anyone who's harmed, in expectation at least, by the entire course of my life. And so it's not like I'm trading a harm to one person for the benefit to another. But these are quite, these are quite subtle issues mm. when we get onto these kind of non-consequentialist reasons. Yeah, and there are also ways in which the business community and, and innovation in general can come to the rescue here. So, for instance, there's a company, uh, I believe the name is going to be changed, but it was, it was called Memphis Meats. Mm. that is spearheading this this revolution in what's called cultured meat or clean meat where they you know they take a single cell from an animal and amplify it so you know no animals are killed in the process of making these steaks or these meatballs or these chicken cutlets and and they're trying to bring this to scale uh, and I, I had the the CEO Uma Valetti on my podcast a couple of years ago and actually invested in in the company along with many other people and and hopefully this will bear fruit that's it, an example of something where, though it was unthinkable some years ago, we might suddenly find ourselves living in a world where you can buy steak and hamburger meat and, and pork and chicken without harming any animals. And it may also have other significant benefits like cutting down on xenoviruses and, and uh, you know, that connects to the pandemic risk issue. Yeah. I mean, we really were, you know, our factory farms are wet markets of another sort. Mm-hmm. And so it is with climate change. On some level, we're waiting and uh, expecting 
for technology to come to the rescue here, where you're just bringing down the cost of uh, renewable energy to the point where it's there is literally no reason to be using fossil fuels or uh, bringing us a new gen- a new generation of nuclear reactors that don't have any of the downsides of old ones. And uh, again, this this does connect to the concern I had around the fancy lifeboat. We have to do the necessary things in our lifeboat that allow for those kinds of breakthroughs, because you know those are the, mm. in, in many cases, the solutions that just fundamentally take away the problem rather than me- merely mitigate it. Yeah, so I totally agree. And I think that, so in the case of, you know, if you're trying to alleviate animal suffering by as much as possible, I think that, yeah, funding research into clean meats, plausibly the best thing you can do. It's hard to make the comparison with the more direct campaigns, but definitely plausibly the best. In the case of climate change, I've recently been pretty convinced that the most effective thing we can be doing is promoting clean energy innovation. In this case, this is another example of importance versus neglectness, where you mentioned renewables, and they're a really key part of the part of the solution. But other areas are really notably more neglected. So carbon capture and storage, where you're capturing CO2 as it, as it emerges from fossil fuel power plants, and nuclear power get quite a small amount of funding compared to solar and wind, even though the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change thinks that they're also a very large part of the solution. Mm. But here, I think the distinction is focusing on issues in rich countries in order to benefit people in those rich countries, or kind of as a means to some other sort of benefit. And so I think it's very often the case that you should focus on, like, you might be sending money towards things happening in a rich country like the US, but not because you're trying to benefit people in the US, because you're trying to benefit the world. So maybe you're funding, yeah, this clean meat startup, or you're funding research into low carbon forms of energy. And sure, like that might happen at the US, which is still the world's research leader. That's very justified. But that's kind of partly the beneficiaries in the US of these things. But it's also, it's, you know, it's global, it's future generations too. You're kind of influencing, as it were, the people who are in the positions of power, who have the most influence over how things are going to go into the future. Hmm. Okay, so in our next chapter, let's talk about how we build effective altruism into our lives and uh, just make this as personally actionable for people as we can. Okay, so we, we've sketched the basic framework of effective altruism and just how we think about systematically evaluating uh, various causes, how we, how we think about you know, what would be prioritized you know, with respect to things like actual outcomes versus a good story. And we've referenced a few things that are sort of now in the, the effective altruist canon, like giving a minimum of 10% of one's income a year. And that's really, if I'm not mistaken, you, you just took that as a, a nice round number that people had some traditional associations with. You know, in, in religious communities, there's a notion of tithing that amount. Uh, and it seemed like not so large as to be impossible to contemplate, but not so small as to be ineffectual. Mm-hmm. Maybe let's start there. How do you, so? Am I right in thinking that the ten percent number just it was kind of pulled out of a hat, but seemed like a good starting point? But there's, there's nothing about it that's carved in stone from your point of view. 
Exactly. It's not, it's not a magic number, but it's just, it's in this Goldilocks zone where Toby originally had had the thought that he would be promoting what he calls the further pledge, which is where you just set a cap on your income and give everything above that. But the issue, I think, seems pretty clear that if he'd been promoting that, well, very few people would have joined him. We do have a, a number of people who've taken the further pledge, but it's a very small minority of the 5,000 members we have. On the other hand, if we were promoting a 1% pledge, let's say, well, we're probably just not changing people's behavior compared to how much they donate anyway. So in the UK, people donate on average 0.7% of their income. In the US, if you include educational donations and church donations, people donate about 2% of their income. So if I was saying, oh, you should donate 1%, probably those people would have been giving 1% anyway. And so we thought 10% is in this Goldilocks zone. And like you say, it has this long history where for generally religious reasons, people much poorer than us in earlier historical epochs have, you know, been able to donate 10%. We also have 10 fingers. It's a nice round number. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, many people who are part of the community donate much more than that. Many people who, you know, affirm core people part of the effective altruism community don't donate that much. They do good via other, other ways instead. It's interesting to consider the psychology of this because I can imagine many people entertaining the prospect of giving 10% of their money away and feeling, well, I could easily do that if I were rich, but I can't do that now. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine many rich people thinking, well, that's a lot of money. Right, it's like every yep. year after year, you know, I'm I'm making a lot of money, and you're telling me year after year after year I'm going to give ten percent away. You know that's millions of dollars a year. So it could be the fact that there's no point on the continuum of of earning where, if you're of a certain frame of mind, it's going to seem like a a Goldilocks value. It's, it's, it's mm. you either feel too poor or too rich, and there's no sweet spot, or you know, to flip that around, you can recognize that however much money you're making, you can always give 10% to the most effective ways of alleviating suffering once you have this epiphany. You can always find those 10% at every point. And if you're not making much money, obviously 10% will be a small amount of money. And if you're making a lot of money, it'll be a large amount. But there's almost all, it's almost always the case that there's 10% of fat there to be found. So yeah, did you have thoughts about just the psychology of someone who feels not immediately comfortable with the idea mm-hmm. of, of making such a commitment? Yeah, I think there's two things I'd like to say to that person. One is the kind of a somewhat direct argument, and the second is more pragmatic. The direct one is just that even if you feel like, oh, I could donate that amount if I were rich, probably you are rich if you're listening to this. So as a if you're single and you earn $66,000, then you're in the global 1% of the world in terms of income distribution. And Mm. what's more, even after donating 10% of your income, you would still be in the richest 1% of the world's population. Mm. If you earn $35,000, which we would not think of as being a rich person, even after donating 10%, you'd still be in the richest 5% of the world's population. And learning those facts was very motivating for me when I first started thinking about my giving. So that's kind of direct argument. But the more pragmatic one is to think, well, if you're at most stages in your life, you'll be earning more in the future than you are now. 
you know, people's incomes tend to increase over time. And you might just reflect, well, how do I feel about money at the moment? And if you feel kind of all right about it, you know, perhaps you're in a situation where you're like, oh, no, I'm actually just fairly worried. There's like serious health um, issues or something. Then it's like, okay, we'll take care of that first. But if you're like, well, actually, you know, life's pretty all right. Don't think additional money will make that much of a difference. Then what you can do is just think, okay, maybe I'm not going to give up to 10% now, but I'll give a very significant proportion of the additional money I make any future raises. So maybe I give 50% of that amount. And probably after, that means that you're still increasing the amount you're earning over time. But at the same time, you're, you know, if you do that, then over the few years, you'll probably quite soon end up giving 10% of your overall income. So at no point in this plan do you ever have to go backwards, as it were, mm-hmm. living on less. In fact, you're always earning more, but yet you're giving more at the same time. And I've certainly found that in my own life where, you know, I started thinking about giving as a graduate student. So, you know, I now earn, you know, I now live on like twice as much, more than twice as much as I did when I first started giving. But I'm also able to give, you know, a significant amount of, of my income. Remind me, how have you approached this personally? Because you haven't taken a minimum 10% pledge. You, you think of it differently. So what have you done over the years? Okay. Yeah, so, you know, so I have taken the giving what we can pledge, which is 10%, kind of at any point. And then I also have intention and, and plan to donate everything above what is the equivalent of £20,000 per year in Oxford 2009, which is now about £27,000 per year. I've never written this down as like a formal pledge. Uh, the reason being that there were just too many possible kind of exceptions. So if I had mm. kids, I'd want to increase that. If there were situations where I thought my ability to do good in the world would be like fairly severely hindered, I'd want to kind of avoid that. But that is the amount that I'm giving at the moment. And it's the amount I plan to give for the rest of my life. Just so I understand it. So, you, you, so you're giving anything you make above 27,000 pounds a year? To charity? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Post, post-tax. And so my income is a little bit complicated in terms of how you evaluate it, because it's my university income, but then also book sales and so on. Mm. I think on the most natural, and there's things like speaking engagements I don't take that I could, but I think on the most natural way of doing it, I give a little over 50% of my income. So I, I, I want to explore that with you a little bit, because again, I, I'm returning to our fancy lifeboat and wondering just how fancy it can be in a way that's compatible with the project of doing the most good in the world. And what I detect in myself and in most of the people I meet, and I'm sure in this is an intuition that is shared by many of our listeners, many people will be reluctant to give up on the aspiration to be wealthy mm-hmm. with everything that that implies. You know, obviously, they they want to work hard and make their money in a way that is good for the world or at least benign. They can follow all of the ethical arguments that would say, you know, right livelihood in some sense is important. But if people really start to succeed in life, I think there's something that will strike many people, if not most, as too abstemious and monkish about the lifestyle you're advertising in choosing to live on that amount of money and give away everything above it, or even just, you know, giving Mm -hmm. away 50% of one's income. 
And again, I think this does actually connect with the question of effectiveness. I mean, so like, it's at least possible that you would be more effective if you were wealthy and living with all that, all that that entails, yeah. living as a wealthy person. And I mean, just to take by example, someone like Bill Gates, you know, he's obviously the, the most extreme example I could find because he's, you know, he's one of the wealthiest people on earth. Still, I think he's number two, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And he's also the the probably well established now. He's the biggest benefactor of charity uh, in in human history. Perhaps the Gates Foundation has been funded to the tune of tens of billions of dollars by him at this point. And so I'm sure he's spent a ton of money on himself and his family. Right, I mean, his life is probably filled to the brim with luxury, but his indulgence in luxury. Is still just a rounding error on the amount of money he's giving away, right? So it's mm-hmm. it's actually hard to run a counterfactual here, but I'd be willing to bet that Gates would be less effective and less wealthy and and have you know, less money to give away if he were living like a monk in any sense. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe more importantly, his life would be less inspiring, uh, less inspiring example to many other wealthy people. If Bill Gates came out of the closet and said, "Listen, I'm, I'm living on fifty thousand dollars a year and giving all my money away to charity," that wouldn't have the same kind of kindling effect. I think his life at this point is, in fact, having, which is, you can really have your cake and eat it too. You can be a billionaire who lives in a massive smart house with all the sexy technology, even fly around on a private jet, and be the the most charitable person in human history. And if you just think of the value of his time, right? Like if he were living a more abstemious life, and I mean, just imagine the the sight of Bill Gates spending an hour trying to save $50 on a a new toaster oven, right? You know, bargain hunting. It would be such a colossal waste of his time, given the value of his time. Again, I I don't have any specifics really about how how to think about this counterfactual, but it, I do have a general sense that, and actually, this is actually a point you made in our first conversation, I believe, mm-hmm. which is you don't want to be an anti-hero in any sense, yeah. right? You you want to, like, if you can inspire only one other person <laughs> to give at the level that you're giving, you have doubled the good you can do in the world. So on, on some level, you want your life to be the most compelling advertisement for this whole project. And I'm just wondering if, I mean, for instance, I'm just wondering what changes we would want to make to, you know, Bill Gates's life at this point to make him an even more inspiring advertisement for effective altruism to other very, very wealthy people, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, it might be dialing down certain things, but given how much good he's able to do, him buying a fancy car is just, it doesn't even register. Yeah. In terms of actual allocation of resources, so anyway, I, I pitched that to you. Yeah, terrific. I think so. There's three different strands I think I'd like to pick apart. So the first is whether everyone should be like me, and I really don't want to make the claim. I certainly don't want to say, "Well, I can do this thing, so everyone else can," because I, I really just think I am in a position of such utter privilege. So being, you know, born into you know, a middle-class family in a rich country, being privately educated, going to Cambridge, then Oxford, then Cambridge, then Oxford, 
being like like tall and male and white and broadly straight um like and then also just having kind of inexpensive tastes like my ideal day involves sitting on a couch and drinking tea and reading some interesting new research and perhaps like doing going wild swimming it's also yeah and then secondly also i have just these amazing benefits in virtue of the work that i do i have this incredibly like i meet these incredibly varied interesting kind of array of people and so i just don't really think i could stand here and say well everyone should do the same as me because i think i've just had it kind of so easy that it doesn't really feel like you know if i think about the sacrifices i have made or the things i found hard over the course of 10 years that's much more like doing scary things like being on the Sam Harris podcast or doing a TED talk or, you know, meeting, you know, very wealthy or very important people, things that might kind of cause anxiety, much more than the kind of financial side of things. But I recognize there are other people for whom, like, money just really matters to them. And I think you just, in part, you're kind of born with a set of preferences and these things, or perhaps they're molded early on in childhood and you don't necessarily have control over them. So that's kind of me as an, uh, yeah what I'm trying to convey through this. Second is the time value of money. And this is something I've really wrestled with because it just is the case that in terms of my personal impact, my donations are just a very small part of that. Mm. Because, you know, we have been successful. We are, you know, giving what we can has now moved $200 million. There's over $1.5 billion of pledged donations. The EA movement as a whole certainly has over $10 billion of assets that kind of will be going out. And then, you know, I'm donating my, th- you know, thousands of pounds per, per year and it does not, or make tens of thousands of pounds per year. And it's, all, it's just very clearly kind of small on the scale. And so that's definitely something I've wrestled with. I don't think I lose enormous amounts of time. My guess is that it's maybe a couple of days of time a year. I have done some things so like, you know, via my work, I have an assistant. If I'm doing business trips, like that counts as expenses rather than my personal money. Mm. So that I'm trying to keep it separate. There's some things you can't do. So like, if you live close to your office, you know, I can't count that as a business expense, but it would shorten your commute. So it's not like perfect as a way of doing that. And so I do think there's an argument, an argument against that. And I think that is definitely a reason of caution for making kind of a very large commitment. And then the final aspect is, yeah, what sort of message you want to send? And probably my guess is that you just want a bit of market segmentation here where some people should, you know, some people should perhaps show what can be done. Others should show, well, no, actually, you can have this amazing life uh, while, you know, not having to wear the hair shirt and so on. You know, I think perhaps you could actually convince me that maybe I'm you know, sending a long message and would do more good if I had some other sort of pledge. And um, maybe you would be right about that. I definitely, when I made these plans, I wasn't thinking through these things quite as carefully as I was now. But Mm -hmm. I did want to just kind of show a proof of concept. Yeah, I I guess I'm, I'm wondering if there's a path through this wilderness that doesn't stigmatize wealth at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, the end game for me, in the presence of absolute abundance is, you know, everyone gets to live like Bill Gates on some level. Yep, if we make absolutely. it, if, you know, if we get to the 22nd century 
and we've you know solved the AI alignment problem, and now we're just pulling wealth out of the ether. I mean, essentially, just we've got uh, Deutsche's universal constructors, you know, building every machine atom by atom, and we can do more or less anything we want. Well, then this can't be based on an ethic where wealth is is at all stigmatized. What should have opprobrium attached to it is a total disconnection from the suffering of other people and mm -hmm. comfort with the more shocking disparities in wealth that we see all around us. Once a you know, reasonably successful person signs on to the, the effective altruist ethic and th begins thinking about his or her life in terms of earning to give on some level, mm -hmm. There's a flywheel effect here where one's desire to be wealthy actually amplifies one's commitment to giving so that, like, in part, the reason why you would continue working is because you have an opportunity to give so much money away and do so much good. And it kind of purifies one's earning in the first place. I mean, like, I can imagine, you know, mo most wealthy people get to a point where they're making enough money so that they don't have to worry about money anymore. And then there's this question, well, why am I making all this money? Why am I still working? And the moment they decide to give a, a certain amount of money away a year, just algorithmically, mm -hmm. then they feel like, well, okay, if this number keeps going up, that is a good thing, right? So like I can get out of bed in the morning and know that today, you know, if it's 10%, you know, one day in 10 is given over wholly to solving the worst suffering or saving the most lives or mitigating the, the worst long-term risk. And if it's 20%, it's, you know, two days out of 10. And if it's 30%, it's three days out of 10. And they could even dial it up. I mean, I'm just imagining, let's say somebody is making $10 million a year and he thinks, okay, I can sign on and give 10% of my income away to charity. That sounds like the right thing to do. And he's persuaded that this should be the minimum. And he but he then aspires to scale this up as he earns more money. You know, maybe this would be the algorithm. You know, for each mm -hmm. million he makes more a year, he just adds the percentage. So if he's making you know fourteen million one year, he'll he'll give fourteen percent of his income away. And if it's fifty million, he'll give fifty percent away, right? And obviously, I mean, if if let's say the minimum he wants to make is nine million a year, well then he can get to up to you know ninety one percent of a hundred million dollars a year. He can give that away. But I can imagine being a very wealthy person who, you know, as you're scaling one of these outlier careers, it would be, you know, fairly thrilling to be the person who's making a hundred million dollars that year, knowing that you're going to give 91% of that away mm. to the most effective charities. And you might not be the person who would have seen any other logic in driving to that kind of wealth. You know, when you were the person who was making ten million dollars a year, because ten million dollars a year is was good enough. I mean, obviously, you can live on that. You know, you're, there's nothing materially is going to change for you as you make more money. But because he or she plugged into this this earning to give logic, and in some ways, the greater commitment to earning was was leveraged by a desire to maintain a wealthy lifestyle. Right? It's like it's, this person does want. $9 million a year, right? Every year. But now they're much wealthier than that and giving much more money away. I'm just trying to figure out how 
we can capture the imagination of people who would see the example of Bill Gates and say, okay, that's, that's the sweet spot, as opposed mm-hmm. to any kind of example that however subtly stigmatizes being wealthy in the first place. Mm. Yeah, I think these are good points. And it's true, I think, the stigma on wealth per se is not a good thing, where you know, if you build a company that's doing good stuff and people like the product and they get value from it, and so there's enormous like surplus as a result of gains from trade and you get wealthy as a result of that, that's a good thing. Obviously, there's some people who like make enormous amounts of money doing bad things, selling opioids or building factory farms, but I don't think that's the majority. And I do think it's the case that, you know, it's kind of like optimal taxation theory, but you're the weird thing is that you're imposing the tax on yourself, where depending on your psychology, if you, you know, say I'm going to give 100% as the highest tax rate, well, you're not incentivized to earn anymore. Hmm. And so the precise amount that you want to give is just quite sensitive to this question of just how unmotivated you're going to be in order to earn more. So in my own case, you know, I'm not it was very clear that I'm, the way I'm going to do good is not primarily via my donations. So perhaps this disincentive effect is you know, not very important. But if my aim were to get as rich as possible, then, well, I'd need to really look inside my own psychology, figure out how much, especially over the entire course of my life, can I be motivated by pure altruism versus self-interest. And I strongly doubt that the kind of optimal tax rate would be you know, via my donations would be 100%. It would be something in between. That's what I'm kind of fishing for here. And, and you know, I, I, I by no means am convinced that I'm right, but I'm just wondering if, in addition to all the other things you want, you know, as mm. revealed in this conversation, you know, for yourself and the world, and, you know, acknowledging that your, you know, your primary contribution to doing good in the world might in fact be your ideas and your ability to get them out there. I mean, like you've had the effect you've had on me and, you know, I'm going to have my effect on, on my audience and, you know, conversations like this have the effect that they have. And so mm-hmm. there's no question you are inspiring people to marshal their resources in these directions uh, and think more clearly about these issues. But what if it were also the case that if you secretly really wanted to own a Ferrari, you would actually make different decisions such that in addition to all the messaging, you would also become a very wealthy person giving away a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, if it was the case, you know, if it was the case that I was planning to you know, earn to give. And so I think a very common kind of figure for people who are going to earn to give via entrepreneurship or other high, high earning careers is a 50% figure where they plan to give half of what they earn, at least once they start earning a significant amount. And that has seemed to work pretty well from the people I know. It's also notably the figure that Bill Gates uses for his giving pledge, where billionaires can join the giving pledge if they give at least 50% of their income, of their wealth. Right. Most take that pledge, if I'm not mistaken, is pushed off to the end of their life, right? They're just imagining they're going to give it upon their death to charity, right? So you are allowed to do that. I know I don't know exactly the proportions. It varies. Like the tech tech founders tend to give earlier than mm. other sorts of people. I'm also not just I'm actually a little bit confused about what pledging fifty percent of your wealth means. So if I I'm a billionaire one year and then lose 
um, half my money and mm-hmm. I've got $500 million the next year, do I have to give half of that? Or do I have to give half of the amount when I pledged, which would have been all my money? Anyway, confuses me a little bit, the details of it, but it is the case that, yeah, you can fulfill your pledge completely in the giving pledge by donating entirely after your death. And there are questions about how much people actually fulfill these pledges too. But then, yeah, and I think, and I really do want to say like, that's also just quite reasonable. Different people have different attitudes to money. I think it's a very rare person indeed that can be entirely motivated. You know, and because we're talking about motivation over decades and we're talking about every single day, motivation can be motivated at all times by pure altruism. I think that's very hard. And so if someone instead wants to pick, you know, percentage number and aim to that, that seems like a sensible way to go. And in particular, you want to be sustainable, where if it's the case that moving from, I don't know, 50% to 60% means that actually you like your desire to do all of this kind of burns out and you go and do something else. That's fairly bad indeed. And you want to be someone who's like, you know, I think the right attitude you want to have towards giving is not to be someone where it's like, oh yeah, I'm giving this amount, but it's just so hard and I like, I really don't like my life and it's really unpleasant. That is, uh, you know, not an inspiring message. Julia Wise has this wonderful, uh, a member of the Effective Altruism community, has this wonderful post called Cheerfully, where she talks about having kids and thinking about that as a question and says that, no, what you want to be is this model, this ideal where you're doing what you're doing and you're saying, yeah, my life is great. <laughs> um, I'm able to do this and I'm still having a really wonderful life. That's certainly how I feel about my life. And I think for many people who are going into these higher learning careers saying, yeah, I'm donating 50% and my life is still like absolutely awesome. In fact, it's better as a result of the amount I'm donating. That's the sweet spot, I think, that you want to hit. Mm. There's another issue here around how public to be around one's giving. And so, you know, you, you and I are having a public conversation about all of this. And this is just, by its very nature, violating a, a norm that we've all inherited, or a norm or a pseudo-norm around generosity and, and altruism, which suggests that the highest form of generosity is to give anonymously. Mm-hmm. There's a Bible verse around this. You don't want to wear your virtue on your sleeve. You don't want to advertise your generosity because that conveys this message that you're doing it for reasons of self-aggrandizement. You're, you're doing it to enhance your reputation. You want your name on the side of the building. Whereas if you were really just connected to the cause of doing good, you would do all of this silently and people would find out after your death or maybe they would never find out that you were the one who had secretly donated millions of dollars to cure some terrible disease or to buy bed nets. And yet, you know, you and I by by association here have flipped that that ethic on its head because it seems to be important to change people's thinking around all of the issues we've been discussing. And the only way to do that is to really discuss them. And what's more, we're leveraging a concern about reputation kind of from the opposite side in recognizing that taking a pledge has psychological consequences, right? I mean, when you publicly commit to do something, that not only advertises to people that this is the sort of project a human being can become enamored of, 
you then have a, a reputational cost to worry about if you decide that you're going to renege on your, your offer. So talk for a few minutes about the significance of talking about any of this in the first place. Yeah, so I think the public aspect is fairly important. And it's for the reason you mentioned earlier, that take the amount of good that you're going to do in your life via donations, and then just think, can I convince one other person to do the same? If so, you've doubled your impact. Um, you've done your life's work over again. And I think mm -hmm. plausibly people can do that many times over, at least in the world today, by being this kind of inspirational role model for others. And so I think this religious tradition where, no, you shouldn't show the generosity you're doing, you should keep that secret. I think that looks pretty bad from an outcome-oriented an outcome -oriented perspective. And I think you need to be careful about how you're doing it. You want to be effective in your communication as well as your giving. Where, you know, it was fairly notable that Peter Singer had these arguments around giving for almost four decades with comparatively little uptake, um, mm. certainly compared to the last 10 years of the effects of altruism movement. And, you know, my best hypothesis is that move from a framing that appeals primarily to guilt, which is, you know, it's a low arousal motivation. You don't often get up and start really doing things on the basis of guilt to inspiration instead, saying like, no, this is an amazing opportunity we have. And so this is a norm that I just really want to change. You know, in the long run, I would like it to be a part of common sense morality that you use a significant part of your resources to help other people. And we will only get there, we will only have that sort of cultural change if people are public about what they're doing and they're able to say, yeah, this is something I'm doing. I'm proud of it. I think you should consider doing it too. This is the world I want to see. Hmm. Well, Will, you have certainly gotten the ball rolling in my life and it's something I'm immensely grateful for. And I, I think this is a good place to leave it. I, I know there will be questions and perhaps we can build out further lessons just based on frequently asked questions that come in in response to what we've said here. But I think that'll be a, the right way to proceed. So for the meantime, thank you for doing this because you, I think you're, you're aware of how many people you're affecting, but it's still early days. And you know, I think it'll be very interesting to see where all this goes because I, I know what it's like to experience a tipping point around these issues personally. And I have to think that, that many people listening to us will have a, a similar experience one day or another, and uh, you will have uh, occasioned it. So thank you for what you're doing. Well, thank you for taking the pledge and getting involved. And yeah, I'm excited to see how these ideas develop over the coming years. <laughs>